I don't know if James could sing, but if he could, I'm sure he'd try to sing that song. That is right down the alley of what he has been speaking to us for five chapters. And uh, I have to admit that there's been a few of you that have been uh, a little bit sarcastic with comments like, uh, you're still in James? I want you to know that I consider you not saved and praying for you diligently. But you need your Bibles this morning. If you do not have your Bible this morning, please grab one. There will be no PowerPoint. That was for you, Colleen. There will be no PowerPoint uh, because this is a summary of five chapters. And I'm going to fly through this. And I'm going to tell you what the central theme of James is from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 5. I hope you understand that you're not going to find, I don't think, at least I couldn't, it would have shortcut in my preparation, any resource that is going to give you what you're going to hear this morning, a snapshot of all of James touching on all of these themes, yet not too deeply to bog us down. So I'm, I want you to pay attention. Uh, James, I think, if he had an Old Testament passage that would have undergirded or been the thesis statement for him of why he wrote this epistle, it would have been Psalm 86, 10, and 11. All I do is I want you to just listen to this. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. Did you hear that? James says God is both great and does marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. See, this is what James is about. James is all about having a heart that knows God's greatness, that fears his name, but yet a life that walks out his truth with an undivided heart. That's what it's about. So we're going to go through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and I'm going to fly through this. All I'm asking you to do is that when I give you the verse reference, you just follow along with me. And uh, try to keep up. For those of you who are brand new to the church that haven't been here for this series, you'll hear a little bit about what we did, and uh, you'll probably, hopefully, never miss again. Here we go, chapter 1. James was, if you remember, the brother of Jesus. A lot of people don't know that. He was his faithful servant. He was a man of prayer. In fact, when he died, people said that his knees were like those of a camel. They were so calloused and hardened and calcified from being on his knees in prayer all of his life. And he was a faithful martyr. Do you remember that James was thrown off of the very pinnacle of the temple down to the courtyard of paved stones below? And when he hit that ground, he struggled to his knees and to his dying breath proclaimed the glories of God and of Jesus Christ until someone in that crowd picked up a club called a Fuller's Club that was used for beating out laundry and came over and struck him in the head and killed him. That's how James was martyred. He lived out his faith in uncompromising, righteous living. And he pastored the great church of Jerusalem. It was the central hub church that sent out these scattered Jews all over Judea and Samaria. And these Jewish believers, they faced intense, ongoing persecution and they faced pressures to forsake Christ 
and to assimilate into the worldly Greek culture. That was the, they, those were the pressures they were facing. Now, friends, I want you to imagine this. They were losing their jobs. And in a society where employment was already very difficult to come by, this was catastrophic. They were losing their homes and their lands. Can you imagine having your homes and your lands ripped away from you? They were rejected from not only the Gentiles because of Christ, but certainly because of the of Christ, their own Jewish fellows and brothers and sisters rejected them. In short, friends, listen, their faith, their faith was faltering. You can understand that, can't you? Haven't you been like me through times where you just feel parched spiritually? And oftentimes those times are because we're going through just relentless problems. So James writes to these Christians all over these scattered churches. And he sends his greetings. You remember in the Greek, that word greetings was a common form of salutation, but it meant a whole lot more than when we just say hello to one another on Sunday mornings. It meant a, a wish, a joyful, happy hope for someone's prosperity and welfare. You see, James has written this book with a joyful hope that it's going to prosper those who hear it. Remember, they weren't readers. And so they didn't have Bibles in their hands. They didn't have scrolls in the hands of every Christian. They had people who were elders who would speak James's letters and the people would listen. And so we come to verse 2 in chapter 1 and James taught these suffering believers to develop a what we call a 4P exercise plan. Here it is. Number one, develop a... Some of you are looking at that screen. You're so habitually trained by this. You're supposed to be looking at your Bibles. That was you, Steve. Develop a redemptive perspective. There's your first P, a perspective in trials. Remember he said consider joy. That word consider means to lead out before your mind. Or in other words, listen, it means to make up your mind... Now, before you get into a trial, that you will be joyful and that you will stay meditating on who God is. That's what it means to develop a redemptive perspective. But secondly, he says in this 4P plan, develop or maintain a persevering attitude. Realizing that you got to understand this, this was a crux of the book, that it's not trials that strengthen our faith. It's trials that come into our lives, and listen, and our perseverance, our heroic endurance, that we will stay in that trial, that we will not forsake Christ, that we will not grab a shortcut out or quit on God. It's that perseverance in trials that develops your faith. That just makes sense. How many of you, if you ever want to get in shape, get on an exercise bike, but never pedal? Getting on the bike without pedaling won't do anything. It's persevering in trials that strengthens our faith. So maintain a persevering attitude. Number three, he said, strive for perfection. What he means is understand that maturity comes when we persevere in the midst of trials. It's that maturity that is the goal of trials. It's that persevering that God wants so that our faith becomes mature. That's why, friends, listen, that, that uh, uh, 
Johnny Erickson Tata, many of you know who she is. She's a quadriplegic from a swimming accident. She said about her body, she's still alive, this quote, this is the prison where God set me free. That's amazing. It's this quadriplegic condition in her life that's been helping her learn how to persevere. And as she perseveres in her faith, even though she can do nothing but move her mouth, her faith is growing. Finally, we're to pray for wisdom. Why? Because, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, wisdom is God's power that He gives in our hearts to bring double-minded people who live in this world and in the kingdom of God at the same time, which is virtually impossible, double-minded people into single-minded. Now, I'm going to tell you that again. This is so important. If you've got a major decision to make, and you come to me and say, Pastor Tim, I need you to pray for wisdom. I'm going to correct you gently and say, no, I'm going to help you pray for understanding first because biblical understanding is what we need to know from God to be able to make the right decisions. And then I'm going to tell you, but I'll also pray for wisdom from God because wisdom is how you will trust God when you don't have the answers. You see, wisdom's the power of God to bring double-minded people who say you're a believer, yet live contrary to that, into single-minded living that says, I know God deeply, my faith is strong, and I'm living it out in righteous living. That single-mindedness, wisdom is God's gift for that. So pray for it. God loves to give, and He gives generously. And then verse 9, James gives an example are several examples of a trial many of them were struggling through. Remember, they were losing their lands. They were losing their homes. They were losing their incomes. They were poor. Did you know, do you remember me telling you that 90% of the Roman world lived below what we would call poverty? 90% of the Roman ancient world lived below poverty and believers were at the bottom of the bottom. But they were rich in Christ. They had a high position because of who they were in Jesus. Remember that we are, we are friends of Christ. You want to know what your riches are? We're friends of Christ. We've been justified. Which means we've been declared innocent of our sins because of Christ's death. We've been bought with a price, a great price. And now we belong to God. Friends, we're members of Christ's body. We are co-heirs with Christ. We've received, the Bible says this, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Friends, listen. Did you know that if you're in Christ by faith, then God has richly given you every single spiritual blessing that Jesus Christ himself enjoys? We're saints, we're holy ones, we're adopted as God's children. We have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. We're set free, we're forgiven of our sins. Do you know the freedom that we have? Because our sins are not held against us any longer. Christ took them on the cross and gave us His righteousness. No longer are we condemned, we're established, we're anointed, we're sealed by the Spirit Himself who will one day perfect us. Friends, we are citizens in heaven. Hidden with Christ and God. 
if we have endless grace, if we have, we have endless mercy to help in our times of needs, these riches and more are found in Christ. Therefore, James says, you're rich. And he says, pursue them. Because those who pursue this world's riches, and we all struggle with this, there's no exceptions. We all struggle with this. When we pursue this world's riches, the text says, those who do that will fade away. And look what he says in verse 12, that we who persevere, who stand the test, we're blessed in this life as well as in eternity. And so when James calls trial-saturated believers blessed, you need to know what he means. You ready? If you're straying in your mind, come back because this is what it means to be blessed. It means that you're in a spiritually prosperous state because of the favor of God who lives in us by the Spirit of God and is making us more like Christ. And here's the conditional statement. As we walk with Him. You see, you can't say that a believer is blessed if that believer is willfully not walking with God because all of Scripture equates God's favor and prosperous state of blessing with those who Christ lives in and they walk with Him. And so in verse 13, we learn that the word tempted, it's the same exact word for the word trial. Some of us endure temptations and sometimes we endure trials. Both of them means proving. They're there to prove our faith genuine. But listen, he emphatically taught that God never, now listen, God never sends a trial to cause us to fail. But instead he, he sends trials to prove our faith Genuine. Did you know that Satan never sends temptations to prove our faith genuine, but always to try to get us to fail? You know, there was a man once who absolutely hated and despised his wife's parakeet. And so he spent considerable time trying to teach it and coax it to speak. But what he was training that bird to say was this, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. (laughs) See, our hearts whisper an invitation. That's our illicit desires. They whisper an invitation to that which can, in the end, destroy us. So how do we resist temptation? Look at verse 16. He says, don't be deceived. It means don't wander off the path of truth. So listen, friends. Ask for directions. Live in community. Get help from one another. Get discernment and see that the deception that's in every single, bar none, temptation, it's in every temptation we'll ever face, is this, that God is holding back good from us. But in truth, James says, every good thing that comes to us, comes from God. So know God. Know His character. Know that He never changes. Know that He gives us a new nature that fights these illicit desires of the flesh and the world and the enemy. Our three enemies are the devil, the world, and our flesh. And God gives us a nature to fight that. So in verse 19, look what it says. James tells us, be quick to listen. Why do you say listen? 
Because I told you, remember, they didn't have scrolls and Bibles. If I were alive in the first century doing what I do now, I'd be speaking to you and you wouldn't have anything to read. Kind of like a lot of you now, it's not much changed. That was a backhanded, loving pastoral slight. (laughs) Bring your Bibles. And you would be listening and you would be hearing the word of God. So James says, don't just listen. Be quick to listen, meaning to be ready to hear God speak and think before we speak. Listen, hear and do. Learn to know the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. I love that when I taught you what was the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. You know, James says, get rid of the moral filth. You know what that word means, that phrase in the Greek? Do you remember? It means the wax that gets in our ears that can obstruct our hearing. So James says, get rid of that wax in your heart that is making you hear the word of God, yet not live it. So he says, get rid of it. And in verse 22, we learn that the result of studying the Bible, friends, listen, it ought to be righteous living. So when Cheryl shares before her song that this series in James has provoked transformation in her, that doesn't stroke my ego. Because I know my words, I in my flesh have no power to even penetrate your heart. Any change comes from the word of God. But friends, it's because she listened. It's because she got rid of the wax. And she obeyed the word of God and God brought and is bringing transformation. So friends, the goal is not to apply the Bible to your life. Uh Uh-oh, he's speaking heresy. It's not to apply the Bible to your life. That's not the goal. That makes me the sender and the Bible, my personal horoscope. It's to apply my life to the Bible. There's a big difference. It makes God's word center. And if the word of God says something, it's my response redemptively to obey. And friends, that's what single mindedness is. It means that there's no division between what we say we believe and how we live. We live out our faith. You remember in verse 26 and 27, James gave three evidences of this single-minded maturity. Here they are. How are you doing? Number one, you learn to control your mouth. That's a sign of maturity. That's a sign of single-mindedness when we stop our mouths from sin. Number two, we live lives of compassion. That's why we do on-ramps. That's why we try to get the entire church out in the community, but it doesn't stop there. It's why we're encouraging you wherever you live, schools, jobs, neighborhoods, families, show compassion because it's a sign of maturity. And James says, number three, we stay unpolluted by the world. And we went to chapter two, and I don't know, maybe eight months ago, James showed us that favoritism is double-mindedness. Do you remember those rich Gold-fingered, that's what that word means, flowing-robed people who would come into Sunday morning worship and all of a sudden the ushers would scurry to them and direct them down to the best benches, the seats closest to the scrolls while all the rest of the people, the poor, had to come in and they sat on the floor on the outside and the usher says, you come over and sit at my feet. He wouldn't even give them up his own seat. That's favoritism. But God loves the poor. Christ came to preach to the poor. And those filled with favoritism, we learn, listen, this is the definition of favoritism. You lack mercy. Anybody 
Anybody who is showing and demonstrating favoritism is demonstrating a corresponding lack of mercy. There are those whose faith is dead or extremely sick, James says. And that's where we turn in chapter 2, verse 14. You see, faith without deeds is dead and deeds without faith are unredemptive. In other words, the world can do deeds. If the gospel of Christ is not manufacturing our deeds, they're unredemptive. They're weak. They're powerless. Faith must be, verse 17, accompanied by action. Or, friends, listen, here's the Greek. It's a corpse. It's a corpse. Your faith, if it's not accompanied by actions, is as dead as a corpse. And we saw that the word action meant work that sprang forth from faith. So faith without deeds is simply an intellectual agreement. Did you know that the demons have this type of faith? They believe and they shudder that there's one God. But James illustrated what real live faith looks like. Remember, he gave us two examples, Abraham and Rahab, a famous patriarch and to the bane of all fundamentalists everywhere, a famous prostitute. And Abraham's faith, one that was demonstrated in the most severe trial, how would you like for God to tell you to take your one and only son whom you love up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to the Lord as a burnt offering? And Abraham says, okay, you know what was happening inside as he carried out this task. Yet God stopped him. But it was his faith that God honored. Rahab, faith in God of Uh, Her faith in the God of Israel moved her to risk her own life to protect these two spies from Israel. And so in both cases, and this is the great secret of this chapter, their faith created redemptive living. Now listen, and this is what the Greek means, the redemptive living came back and increased their faith. And their increased faith gave more righteous living and more righteous living gave even more mature faith. That's the great cycle. That's why we got to live in this way is that you cannot just proclaim that you profess Christ. That's got to be lived out in a faith that lives or else your faith will stay anemic if even alive. We came to chapter three, one of my favorite portions of the Bible of the book. Because it's all about teachers, not just verse 1. A lot of people think verse one's just about teachers. The entire chapter is about those who were leading the churches towards maturity, the leaders and the teachers. But yet they were leading the churches towards division and worldliness. And so chapter 3 targets this. Now remember, listen, the ancient world, I told you, has no social ladder. So if you want to be significant, even though you're poor, you want influence, you want power, you want respectability, then become a teacher. Because if you can become a teacher in the newly forming explosive church of God, now you've got respect. And so people were clamoring for these positions. James taught them that God will judge teachers, cornerstone, pastors, me. Where's Van Summer? And I want to get him on this too. God will judge us more strictly because, listen, because we act like the bit in a horse's mouth or the or the rudder on a ship. We have the power rightfully to steer that church. 
And teachers can be constructive or they can be incredibly destructive like a forest fire. So teachers in the church, we've got to pray, we've got to study, we've got to prepare, we've got to mature in our faith, and we've got to live it out rightly. And so in verse 13, these teachers modeled, some of them, humility. They modeled a good life. Notice he doesn't say just strong faith. He says they modeled a good life and righteous deeds. But look at verse 16. Some of them were filled with bitter bitter envy and selfish ambition. And what were they doing in the church? They were producing instability, which means disorder. They were leading people towards ungodly living because their wisdom did not come from God. It came from the three enemies that we all have, the world, their flesh, and the devil. And they were infiltrating the church. But godly teachers, friends, listen, if you're a teacher, whether it's children or adults, if you're a teacher, then seven, seven fruit should be evidenced in your life to growing degree. And here they are in verse 17, I think it is. Godly teachers are filled with God's wisdom. Here it is, which is pure, peaceful. I got to tell you something. It's got to be a pretty serious doctrinal problem to get me to come to battle against you. Pure, considerate, peaceful, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. That's what teachers ought to be living. Because if they're living that, verse 18 says, they will be peacemakers and their church will be filled with righteousness. Don't you hunger for a church to be filled with righteousness? Then that church needs godly teachers. Pray for your teachers. Pray for your pastors. Pray for God's wisdom, which is His power to bring us into single-minded, fruit-filled living. But chapter 4 shows us what can happen if we're not peacemakers. Because we need to learn, verse 1, that every single conflict that you and I will ever have, every war-monging relationship that we are ever embroiled with, James says, comes from fierce and ungodly desires, that word means hedonism, that battles in our hearts. In other words, Paul Harrison, when you want something to battle over and I want something that's different and we come together, we're going to fight. Conflict erupts when we selfishly want something bad enough to fight for it. But God sees our hearts with clarity. He calls, this is terrible. Friends, this is what he calls us when we're fighting with our spouses. When we're fighting with our children, we're fighting with people in the church. He says, you're adulterers. You ever been called an adulterer? James is doing it. Not only an adulterer, you're a friend of the world to a Jew. To be called a friend of the world is a slap in the face. They were not friends with the world. They didn't even mingle with Gentiles. And not only were they adulterers and friends of the world, they were God-hating enemies of His. But verses 4, or 5 and 6 rather, shows us that God, thank you Lord, is intensely jealous for our hearts and he pursues us 
and He showers us with grace, which transforms our hearts. And like the Niagara Falls spilling billions of gallons of water every year, God gives more and more and more grace to our warring hearts. And you know how He does it? The Bible says in James, He opposes us. And that word opposes is a military word. It means that He arrays all of His power against us. And He brings us to brokenness and humility. Now friends, I frustrated some of you to death with the ten steps of becoming a peacemaker because you kept waiting week after week to meet for me to finally tell you, here's how you do it. But James wasn't interested in giving us steps of how to patch up broken relationships. He was interested in helping all of us and each of us have a heart that hungers for peace. So how do we do it? Number one, we submit to God. That's another military term. It means to step back in rank. Because when I'm fighting with my wife, I've come out of rank with God. And I've gone up on the throne and I've demanded my way. And so God says, get off the throne, get back into rank. And then he says, fight the right enemy. Don't fight each other. Who's your enemy? Your enemy is the devil. And the devil, his name means one who separates. He wants to separate us from one another. He wants to separate us from God. When we fight, we're fighting the battle of our enemy. Number three, we come near to God in prayer. We join with Him rather than fight against Him. Number four, we wash our hands through confession of our sins that the Word of God reveals. Remember in the, in the temple that the bronze labor where they washed their hands was made from the polished mirrors of the women's uh, lenses for their mirrors? It's because it's a type, it's a shadow that points to the Word of God. It reveals our sins when we go into the Bible. You cannot go into the Bible seriously without seeing your own heart. And when we do, we confess. And we bring our double-minded hearts to single-minded commitment to peace. And number six, we grieve. Grieve means to think about something so long that it finally seeps in to heart conviction. And we mourn when it does with godly sorrow. And I gave you seven ways To be able to distinguish what's worldly sorrow and what's godly sorrow. And it means to be number eight, so thorough in our grief that we repent from our war making hearts. And number nine, it's meant to say that we should be serious about our sin. We should hate our sin. We should be disgusted with it. And finally, number 10, we need to humble ourselves to others and to God, and we need to assign ourselves willingly a lower rank. And here's what James says. If we will do that heart work, then God will lift us up and exalt us, and we will be peacemakers harvesting righteousness. And he showed us how that works. Because if you're like me, and you tend to judge people, and you tend to have a mouth that can be critical of other people, then you've gone up on the throne and you're standing in judgment of the Word of God of that person. And listen, you're in judgment of God Himself. You're pounding the gavel on God when you judge. So James says, get off the throne. Live at the base in worship. 
And in 4.15, get off the throne of planning every little bit of our lives. I'm going to do this next week, God, because this is what I want to do. It James teaches to say, Deo Valente, in the Latin means God willing. Let God be God. And then we came into chapter 5, running. Where James gives a blistering warning to the unbelieving Jews who were persecuting the believers in these churches. You remember that? He says they should weep and wail because their judgment's coming. You see, what they did was they took their lands away, these wealthy landowners, and they weren't paying the wages, and they were throwing them into court, and they were getting guilty sentences and being put in jail. These were the believers. Because they couldn't pay their debts. So James says to the believers who are suffering, be patient. How? He gives them six ways. Number one, verse seven, chapter five. Remember, Christ is coming. Christ is returning. So keep your eyes to the skies. Number number two is in verse nine. Keep your ear to the door and know that the Lord's about to enter his courtroom. So don't grumble. Don't let God come back when, when we're in the midst of complaining and criticizing those who are hurting us. Number three, keep your feet on the trail. Friends, listen, verse 10 says it's our turn to suffer. And it's on a well-marked trail. Thousands and thousands of saints have walked the path of suffering before us. It's our turn now. We do it with faith. Number four, the first part of 11, keep your thoughts grounded in truth. Know that God cares and he blesses those who persevere. Secondly, in, in the middle part of verse 11, number five, keep the old stories of Job's perseverance alive. Recall the, the stories of the saints of old and let it encourage you. And finally, number six, in the last part of verse 11, keep our lives centered on God's goodness, knowing that he's full of compassion and mercy. Remember I told you that grace is God's movement to take away our sin. But mercy is God's power that takes away the consequences of our sin. That's the difference between God's grace and mercy, and he's full of both of those. And a mature faith is one where we speak truthfully. Our yeses are yeses and our noes noes. We don't cross our fingers when we make promises. And then finally, we narrowed it down to verse 13 as we're coming to the conclusion of the book. And friends, you got to remember, there are a lot of people in this church, they were weary. They were ready to collapse in their faith. And so if you're weary and your faith is faltering, James says, call the elders because it's the elders jobs to shepherd you and to pray for you. So call the elders and listen it. By the way, if it's sin that's continual and habitual and repeated in your life and that sin is eroding your faith, which is what habitual sin does, then confess it to the elders. And when you confess Remember that that word means it's a double-edged sword. God, excuse me, God, you're judging me. And God, your grace is for me. But James says, listen, you don't need to get to the point where your faith is collapsing. Confess your sins to one another. These are the CPRs of healthy Christian living. Confess openly your sins to trusted Christians. And when somebody opens up and confesses their sin to us, we should pray repeatedly over and over until God restores their faith and lifts them out of that sin and finally rescue 
one another. Friends, people all through our church, people all through this nation are losing their grip on faith. They're walking away from truth into error. They may have been part of the church for years. They may have professed faith in Christ. But those who walk away prove the quality of their faith. I'm not talking about momentary backsliding. I'm talking about departure from faith. And James says, pursue them lovingly and gently in prayer and in truth in order to turn them and save them from spiritual death and lead them to Christ who's ready to forgive. Let me close with this. Remember, the theme of James is maturity in our faith. The entire letter is about wisdom that God brings that will move us from double-minded, divided hearts to single-minded living where our knowledge of God transforms us to live righteously for His sake. And it works in our speech and in our relationships and our perseverance and in our teaching and in our fellowship and how we treat the poor and the suffering and how we plan our lives and how we endure difficult people and persevere in difficult circumstances and how we move towards those whose faith is faltering. You know, there was a man in New York City who died at the age of 63 years old who never, ever held a job. He spent his entire life in college. And during those years, he acquired so many academic degrees that they looked like the alphabet behind his name. Why? When he was a child, a wealthy relative died who had named him as a beneficiary in his will. And it was stated that as long as he was in school, he was to be given enough money to support him every year. And so it was to be discontinued when he completed his education. So the man met the terms of the will, but friends, by remaining in school indefinitely, he turned a technicality into a steady income for life, something his benefactor never intended. And unfortunately, he spent thousands and thousands of hours listening to professors, reading books, writing papers, but never, ever doing And he acquired more and more knowledge, but didn't put it into his life. Friends, I'm going to tell you, unfortunately, that's a lot of Christians I know. And a lot of times it's by their own admission. Are you one of them? Because if you are, James has something to say to you. Fifty-four times he wants to say it. Fifty-four times he commands us to get moving and to move away from a weak, divided, double-minded faith into single-minded maturity. It's a command. And James won't rest until we do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for this book. I have absolutely enjoyed it. I have benefited from it. It has challenged me at every turn. Lord, I pray that I was faithful to the text Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to the text, and that is to live out your truth in single-minded, mature faith. Lord, give us wisdom to enable us, Lord, to dig deeply into who you are and to live it out broadly in righteousness.
Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for those who might be here this morning that have not yet come to faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would pursue and beckon and call and bring them and draw them to you. Let them bend the knee and come to Christ and make Jesus their Lord and Savior. And receive forgiveness of their sins and the promise and the hope of eternal life. Lord, for my brother and sister who might be here this morning who knows these truths but really is not living them out in righteous living. Lord, I pray that you would get them moving and let them come to you for help. Lord, for those who are far ahead of where I'm at, far ahead of many of us, and the walk of faith, Lord, I pray that you continue to encourage them. Let them mentor, let them encourage and be sages, Lord, for this church. Draw people onto the path of faith deeper and deeper into your glories. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.